0: Welcome to the Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm Danielle Hanley, and joining me on the other line, it's our favorite KGB general, Justin from Moscow, John McMahon.
1: (laughs) I'm John McMahon, and joining me on the other line is the FBI agent next door, Danielle Hanley.
0: (laughs) Get ready for
1: lots of those, folks.
0: That was a good one. That was... uh, that was good.
1: So Danielle and I listeners are going to do that literally every time and we're going to see if we ever end up with the same and to show you why one reason why we are podcasting together. My other option had Danielle not gone with that one was <laughs> everyone's favorite her suit, KGB general. Nice. So, you know, we were <laughs> we're we're, we're vibing in the same way here.
0: I just feel like this show has so much potential for us to have really crazy um, intros like that. I'm yeah, excited. I can't wait.
1: Um, so what else can people be excited for on this podcast? Uh, I guess probably we should ask Danielle how we got here in the first place. Danielle so- and I are both political theory professors with, a, with podcasts in our professional background. Uh, we bonded initially over podcasts many years ago.
0: I guess we really like to mix You know, business and pleasure in that we like, we both listen (laughs) to a lot of podcasts. (laughs) We both listen to a lot of podcasts, but also we sort of write and work on and theorize podcasts also. And that's part of what I think part of what sparked our friendship, even though we had met before that, just sort of um, thinking and talking about podcasts, whether it be assignments that we give our students or episodes that we are recording together of this podcast, of other podcasts. Um, Yeah, we're always thinking and talking about podcasts, actually. Yeah. And
1: so Business and Pleasure is, of course, just a nice way to say (laughs) that we have terrible work-life balances and decided to start a new another podcast to help with that problem. Danielle and I are political theory professors. This is not a political theory podcast. Danielle texted me, I don't know, a little over a month ago at this point. Yeah you know, we're both in the middle of like grading finals or whatever it is we were doing. And it suggests that, uh, we watch a show together that we talk about that show together. And then, um, quickly, like literally, I believe later that same day, it became the podcast the you were, and I were listening to.
0: Not even later that same day. It was like within the hour. like, <laughs> Yeah, let's figure out a show. Okay. Like what shows, what shows have you seen? What shows have I seen? Like, something, something. And, and I think I said, Oh, like I've actually never seen the Americans and it's something that I'm excited to like, I, maybe I'll dig into over winter break. And you were like, is this a podcast?
1: That's better detail than I had remembered. <laughs> so thank you for that. And that also is a way for us to tell everybody what the conceit of the show is. Yes. And that is that uh, for the things we're going to talk about, one of us is going to have watched the show probably multiple times And the other person will be a first-time or maybe second-time viewer of the show. A novice, if you will. A novice is a great way to frame that. Um, And so the first... Clearly, as you now know from clicking, uh, tapping on this episode, we're talking about the Americans because we thought yeah. we would start with a small project.
0: Very, like, casual, one weekend, binge watch done. <laughs> yeah,
1: cool. You know, and then and so in 70 episodes in three years, we'll finish the <laughs> Americans. Uh, and in the meantime, we will drop in with other shorter shows.
0: Yeah, and I think also, like, we we might also drop a movie uh, in the feed here or there and so while the sort of main focus of the podcast at least for the time being is the Americans there'll be some sort of extra bonus stuff that we will you know use to wet our whistles and and wet yours also when you need a break from KGB agents.
1: <laughs> who did need that break? Uh, so I, that's probably like a summer project I believe we're thinking because um, yeah. we are you know Terrible, like, work-life balance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The other motivation for this podcast, if we're being very honest with the listeners to any of those, we probably should, is that we each have, like, extremely parasocial relationships with our favorite podcasters, (laughs) including our favorite TV podcasters and movie podcasters and culture podcasters more broadly. And so what better way to honor the creepiness of those parasocial relationships (laughs) except to start a TV podcast of our own?
0: And, you know, eagle-eye listeners might uh, take some cues from the intro as to what one or multiple of those podcasts or podcast networks might be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the the one other, maybe two other warnings, warning is maybe the wrong word to give our audience, is that uh, this podcast for us.
0: Totally not, for us.
1: We're not. Maybe
0: Like, not welcome. Listening. We're happy to have yes. you. We're so excited you clicked on this on uh, the episode and, and on the feed and hopefully subscribe. But, like, this is for us.
1: It is. Um, so we're not going to optimize the podcast.
0: Uh, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're not we're not trying to grow our listener base. Uh, it's not the primary goal here. Um, we have no monetization plans at this moment. But like in true Philip Jennings style, if you want to like give us three million dollars, you can. Spotify, you know. come
0: after us. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Simmons, you need some academics on your feed. No, I
1: don't know about the second part of that. Uh, and while we're not optimizing, this is for us. We do love a structure. We love a gimmick. We love an accountability mechanism. And so those will be parts of the show, as you see going forward. And, uh, yeah, it's not going to be a political theory podcast, except for the last five minutes or so of every episode.
0: Yeah, it's not going to be a political theory podcast, but, like, and maybe this (laughs) is a warning, we are political theorists, and, like, we are bad at balancing work and life. Sometimes we're bad at keeping political theory out of our brains. So... We are going to pull all that stuff together in the last 5 minutes or so of the episode, but no promises that it doesn't creep itself into the other segments also. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like we said, this is for us.
1: So today, I think if we if we turn to our the episode at hand, we are we are embarking on this rewatch for me i think this will be the third time i have seen the americans first watch for danielle of this wonderful beautiful gorgeous show and we're starting obviously with the pilot americans season one episode one titled pilot directed by gavin o'connor and written by joseph weisberg who is one of the two showrunners and himself a worked in the CIA for a couple of years uh, is one of the writers of the episode and the other is Mike Battistick. And uh, so what we're going to do to open our episodes, uh, there will not be seven, eight minutes of preamble. Most episodes, <laughs> most, I don't want to promise all, yeah. uh, is that we're going to, we're going to give a synopsis from Trusty IMDB. And then Danielle as the newcomer to the Americans We'll give some first impressions. So Danielle, yep. I think I think that means we're over to you.
0: Ah, oh, amazing. Okay, so the synopsis from IMDB is in the nineteen eighties, two Russian KGB agents were trained and set up as sleepers, the inconspicuous all American Jennings couple, Philip and Elizabeth, along with their unsuspecting kids, Harry and Paige. Now, they must prevent the defection of KGB agent Nikolai Timoshev. Formerly one of their abusive instructors, whom they managed to kidnap. By coincidence, their new neighbor is FBI agent Stan Beeman. Loyalties are tested among the spouses and by KGB General. Oh man, Victor
1: Zhukov. Victor I will Zhukov. be doing the yeah. Russian pronunciation. I, I was, I was a Russian major in undergrad, yeah. <laughs> guys. Like you know, y'all like so. Uh, oh
0: man, I just my Zhukov, yeah. Richter Zhukov, who promises the Jennings a small fortune if they allow him to defect.
1: You know what? We, we have to correct the IMDb storyline because that is wrong. Um.
0: <laughs> this is perfect. This, I feel like this is exactly the wrong <laughs> right. This is like, as model professors, we are modeling an outline. We're modeling a structure. And like maybe we're also modeling critique, which is IMDb. You messed up here.
1: <laughs> so this is, so this, this is the like number one upvoted storyline comment by, uh, in IMDb. So it's actually, in fact, our friend Timoshev who tries to convince, uh, Philip and Elizabeth to defect. Whereas is Zhukov who is like overseeing, who is running these two agents, um, and does ask Elizabeth if Philip like is really committed. At the end. And Zhukov is also like the emotional touch point back in the Soviet Union for both Philip and Elizabeth is part of the good side of their training.
0: Score one for critique corner on (laughs) on the Not Quite Great Books podcast. I feel good about it. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me do some first impressions. I was watching this episode and had about 75 million questions the minute everything started. (laughs) So I'm just going to read you some of the questions.
1: Great. Do you want answers to these questions,
0: Danielle? No, 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 no answers okay. necessary. Some okay. of them get answered like in the episode, but I just want to give you and the listeners a sense of like, what are my actual first impressions? Like as I'm watching this episode, <laughs> why is Kerry Russell's hair straight? <laughs> major, major question. I okay. that um, one gets answered quickly. So why is Carrie Rosal's hair straight? Are these their actual kids? How long have they been here? What is time?
1: <laughs> That's <laughs> going to be a recurring question on the not quite great books
0: podcast. For sure. Um, <laughs> gray sweatshirt watch. We have to be in the USSR, right? Um, okay. Lots of wigs. Ooh. Investigator of central intelligence. Who is falling for this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Martha. Martha is falling.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, Philip loves Elizabeth question mark what is the nature of their relationship and then oh wow neighbor in the FBI and I would say that my favorite line from the episode which I will probably try to do this every time but my favorite line is um, they can be socialists <laughs> like, said with so much emotion and gusto um, oh okay and one last question Okay, FBI dude was role playing a white supremacist. What is this role playing? And I feel like we're gonna. That's gonna have to come back. Uh, okay. and so those I, are my questions.
1: And I think that one of the things we want to explore on this show is like, what does a new time watcher bring to it? So some of those things Danielle asked are questions that will indeed be explored over the next eight years of this podcast <laughs> and some of them are red herrings. And we'll, we'll hear more about that later on.
0: Yeah. We'll get, we'll get, Oh, don't worry. I have more, I have more things for the, for red herrings too. <laughs> but I think overall, I would say just like, you know, as someone who is watching TV in 2022 where there are a million different things that could potentially be distracting. And usually when I'm watching a TV show, I'm, like, on my phone or, like, checking my email or maybe I'm also grading or doing whatever. This episode, like, I was paying attention the whole time. And not just because we're doing this podcast, <laughs> but, like, it actually, like, it kept my it kept my attention and I was, like, interested in the different pieces and all the different layers and just trying to figure out, like, okay, like, how do these things fall apart. So I was like, as far as pilot episodes go, I would say this is probably up there with West Wing as like one of the top pilot episodes that I've ever seen.
1: Uh, I've never watched the West Wing listeners and oh we might, maybe we can start a recurring segment where Amy or where Danielle tries to convince me uh, we're keeping that in for reasons that will become clear down the line uh, where Danielle tries to convince me that uh, I should watch the West Wing and I keep declining. Um, I, th- I think you're right, Danielle. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's with one gigantic exception, which we will get to a little bit later on in the episode. I feel this is like basically perfect pilot. Yeah. Um, in terms of like establishing the action, obviously, like it starts with a couple essentially action sequences, right? One of them yeah. is um, Elizabeth in character uh, seducing the Department of Justice guy, um, schlub maybe is a word that we could use there to describe (laughs) him, uh, and Philip and someone else, uh, who is working with them, uh, try to jump the person who had defected that they are now going to try to capture to send back to the Soviet Union. So we get like the, the, you know, the spy craft, the action sequences immediately, like immediately, immediately. Yeah. And the other thing that as a pilot, I think this episode is super effective about is setting, the kind of personal emotional stakes of the show and the way that those intertwine with the political stakes as we will be exploring very, very shortly. But, you know, I mean, so Danielle, to kind of give you a preview, like one of the common critical tropes about this show is that it uses the structure of the spy TV show to explore questions about love and marriage. And I imagine that is quite clear to you as, as, as we go from the jump.
0: Yeah. And I also think that that is something that is really effective, right? Which is that it is pulling you in with the intrigue of of spies and conspiracies and and the sort of specific political setting and Soviet Union, America, et cetera, et cetera. It pulls you in with those sort of like big flashy um, uh, moves and tropes. And then at the end of the day, those are still there, but they're being like worked through and pushed against and challenged within the domestic relationship, right? So like you get the, the like large booms and pows and also these sort of smaller, more intimate moments. And they're both working on, or they're working like sort of weirdly on similar registers.
1: Yes. I think in, in terms of like an aesthetic experience or a viewership experience, they are indeed on the same registers very yeah. much. Um, and I think they, that only becomes stronger and I, it kind of makes me wonder to the extent to which that was an intention of the showrunners Weisberg and Field versus that something they discovered right in the process of like making this first season. Yeah. Um, cause there is going to be a slight shift in like how the show functioned from season one to season two. Okay. Um, and so that, that, that has made me wonder that before. Um, and actually, so Danielle, this is actually important that you know this if you don't know already. Um, but Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese, right? So the two main uh, actors yeah. in the show, uh, now married. Yes. When they began filming The Americans, not they married. were not. They got married like they hooked up uh, as part of uh, the <laughs> I mean, process of making this show, which is obvious for reasons that I will want to talk about later.
0: Yeah, and and the, I guess I the other thing I should say is like I knew that they were married, but I didn't realize they had met. It. Um, in this show, but the minute he comes on screen, I was like, the last time I saw him, he was like a demon in Charmed and I was 16. So <laughs> I was incredible. like, it, it took me a minute in the episode to be like, he's not a demon. Like he's, this is not a magic show, which as our listeners will get to know, I love a magic <laughs> show. I love a show. I love a show that's got like fantasy elements. And this is sort of for me, a little bit of a departure from stuff that I that I usually watch because it doesn't have the like fantasy or the marvel of it all, <laughs> which we'll <laughs> right. get into this, at some point later.
1: Indeed, and is one of like the only tensions between Danielle and I, as <laughs> yeah. consumers. If we, I don't like that word. We'll go with the consumers of pop culture. Uh, speaking of tensions, Danielle, I believe you had uh-huh. identified. Some we we as theorists love our tensions. So we we know that you have some tensions that you wanted to share about this episode.
0: Yeah. So some of the tensions that I was—it's like impossible for me to watch something like a drama and not be thinking about tensions. But some of the tensions I was thinking about, right, are sort of um, Soviet Union versus America. Uh, That that tension, which I think is obviously doing a lot of work in this episode, and I suspect we'll be doing a lot of work going forward the tension between defecting or staying the mission versus and then also like the bigger version of like this particular mission or blowing up their lives like i think there's some some pieces there i think there is obviously the dramatic tension of like is stan going to catch them like like is and that i think the heightening that happens around that through the episode is really interesting um,
1: and this, if I can jump in, I think it was smart of the show to just like go there right away. Um, yeah, you know, the, I think so their version of a will they, won't they is, is Stan going to be suspicious of his neighbors, yeah. uh, the Jennings is or supposed Jenningses, Jennings is. And like the episode ends with Stan going and looking around the yeah. garage because he thinks something is up. Uh, and it's revealed that Philip is, like, there with a, with a firearm and a silencer, like, ready to end it at any moment. Um, but, yeah. like, they could have they, they just made the first season, like, simply about is Stan going to be suspicious or try to figure stuff out about the Jennings. And, like, yeah. that scene that is the end of the pilot, like, could have been the final scene of, like, the season, the first season of the show. And I'm yeah. really glad that they didn't drag that out. Um, A, just for like reasons that I think will become clear as we see the, especially Phil, Philip and Stan relationship develop over time. Um, But also just because I think it lets them tell a lot more different kinds of like spy genre stories because they were like, we're going to acknowledge that this is like super contrived and actually kind of rush into that and accept that and take that where we want to take it.
0: Yeah. And like something that I appreciated like related to this is the scene where Stan is, um, they're in the FBI office or rather, yeah, they're in the mm-hmm, FBI mm-hmm. office and it like comes to light that Stan was like embedded in a white supremacist, which I like have questions about, and I'm sure I'm going to keep asking questions about going forward, but like, that he was embedded. And so, and then everybody's like, Oh wow, cool. Like, you know, so much stuff. Um, and the way that he's just sort of like, yeah, this is the kind of knowledge that I'm able to, like, garner because of those experiences. I thought that that was some really interesting character development for Stan.
1: Yeah. And it functions as well on the plot level of the Stan narrates to the, uh, CIA and FBI officers that he is talking to. If he were an undercover KGB agent and he, uh, abducted the defector that the FBI is like, we think the KGB abducted Timoshenko, um, the defector, um, what would they do? And it was exactly what Philip and Elizabeth had done. They yeah. had, hid the person they had abducted in their home because that would be the safest and hardest place to look so much so that like the higher up at the FBI is like, so if they hid this defector in in a private home, we're never going to find him. Right. And Stan simply says, correct. And then scene.
0: Yeah. And I think part of the reason why I appreciated, just like you were saying before, that they sort of got this, they got this out of the show system quickly, like whether this was going to be the only tension Um, was because I I understand Stan being super, like, suspicious and, in fact, share that with him, which we'll get to in a a (laughs) bit. (laughs) But I'm like, I don't... uh, Stan being super suspicious to, like, him being suspicious of Elizabeth and Philip, in the grand scheme of life, I'm not sure I buy. But, like, I think the fact that the show sort of, like, Got us through that quickly, and and gave us this payoff at the end with Philip with the silencer. I was like, okay, now I see, I see what's happening here, and I appreciate this. And they even now I'm thinking about it. A scene that I had
1: not really appreciated before, but I appreciated rewatching this last night was the scene where Stan and his wife Sandra are in the kitchen unpacking, oh my God. and uh, <laughs> Sandra is just like really, like, dragging uh, Stan, because I... Stan is, like, expressing some, uh, you know, skepticism, like, the, our neighbors are off, whatever, and then Sandra is like, well, maybe the postman is, like, running drugs, and the person at the, like, convenience store down the street is really suspicious, and, like, Stan doesn't catch on until the second or third, like, She plays it day.
0: so deadpan. She's mm-hmm. like, I don't know, yeah, like, I, you know, I also agree, And but may- and maybe also the postman, you're like, yeah, maybe also the person, And then she's got three other people who are like, okay. Like that was that was like some genius acting there. I really yeah. appreciated that scene too.
1: And yeah. once again it's the mirror image and we might talk about mirrors later. Um <laughs> Um, for, for more than one reason, now that I think about it, um, like that's a mirror scene or a mirror dynamic to Philip and Elizabeth, right? Where their yeah. spy story is also like a story about their like domestic, like yeah. marriage. Um, so is, uh, there this parallel between Stan and Sandra because he was undercover and even says in the episode, I barely saw my family for three years while I was undercover with the white yeah. supremacist group in Arkansas.
0: Well, and I think it's interesting, and again, I think we'll come to this in a moment, but like, it's interesting to think about some of these parallels, right, where you get Philip and Elizabeth, who sort of by training are, they're not trusting people, they're not trusting their surroundings, right? Like, they know the things to look for. Stan also has a similar set of training, but it's being weaponized in a different way, right? Like, for Mm -hmm. Philip and Elizabeth, this is a, it's like a mission that they are on, and and. For Stan, it's a it's sort of about preservation, right? So it's like it's coming into conflict in these subtle ways within their interactions and their personalities that again have that sort of effect of um unfolding on a on a register that is like perhaps underneath or or more subtle than the the bigger moves that are happening in the episode.
1: Yeah. And if I can pick up on that, Danielle, I think. One of like the bigger picture themes that's happening in this episode, but that I'm interested in throughout the show as a whole is the close pairing of domesticity and violence or domesticity and the spy craft or these sorts of things. Right. So if we think about like, I started making a list of like all the ways this happens. So when Philip and Elizabeth kids are like around, or if they just want to make some noise in case there's like a bug in the house or whatever, they are running the exhaust fan over the stove. They are running the sink. They are running the washer and dryer. Um, they're turning on the radio louder, right? All of these happen in this first episode so that they can like have their moment. So they are literally using not only like the domestic marriage itself is the cover, right. But, but like the actual domestic labor of their, uh, marriage as the mechanism for that enables them to like engage in open conversation about their spy craft. And, like, this keeps going further throughout, right? Like, there is their secret stash of weapons, guns, wigs, recording, like, fake passports, all their go bags, like, all of this kind of stuff is in the laundry room hidden behind the circuit breaker. Yeah. Um, You know, like, and we will see many, many, many scenes over the next uh, years um, that take place within that laundry room. Yeah. And so there's just all these ways in which... You know, their perfect, like, white picket fence house. And, like, it's a big house. It's, like, very Americanized, like, you know, Suburbs. upper class suburb. It's Falls Church, Virginia, um, mm-hmm. is where it's set in. Um, so there's just, like, that way in which the, you know, there's this uh, commentary or kind of calling attention to the domesticity as it is part of the violence or the spy craft or the whatever. So it, one yeah. might say, Danielle, that the personal is the political.
0: One might say. I feel... I feel good about saying that the personal is certainly the political here. Um, do we want to talk a little bit? And I think this this piggybacks on that discussion of the personal is the political and the way in which all of these things are really intertwined. But do you want to talk a little bit about the title? I do. And okay, so what are you thinking? Um, what are you thinking about the title?
1: So I'm thinking. So the title is "The Americans," right? Although it's written in a kind of like lightly Cyrillic cyrillicized yeah. font um, and that'll be a hammer so- and
0: sickle <laughs>
1: <laughs> right right it's not subtle here friends um <laughs> No, and i actually was disappointed that you know you have an i i hope it i think it's there for episode two but there is like a, a title sequence that like am Slat to like 129 oh, um okay coming coming our way very soon i think um <laughs> so amazing. the title of the show is the americans right which is you know they could have as easily called it the soviets or the russians right so there's yeah. something about yeah. even in the title and this is one of the other kind of big themes that especially as political theorists, I'm sure Danielle and I will be tracking together on um, this journey that you, for whatever reason, have lovely, so lovely decided to join <laughs> us on listeners, is that this is a show that, like, yes, is about these Soviets and trying in some ways to establish, I think, some kind of external perspective on the USA of the 1980s. Yeah. In the context of the Cold War, but also in the context of consumerism or of domestic life or of, like, these emotional and, like, familial and psychic and kinship bonds and all of these other sorts of ideas, because, you know, we get... Philip and Elizabeth debating in this episode. And I forgot as well, that this is like literally part of this first episode. I thought this was one of these like first season story plots, but it's actually in this first episode that Philip is trying to convince Elizabeth to like defect and be like, let's be done. We've been doing this for almost 20 years at this point. Yeah. And we should take the $3 million and just like actually become the Americans that we are undercover as being, and that the title of the show is saying we are, and that then opens up into this conversation. This was your, your favorite line, Danielle, where uh, <laughs> Philip is, Philip is like trying to convince Elizabeth that, well, we can tell our, the kids, like, we just will raise them to be socialists. And Elizabeth is like, no, you cannot raise a socialist in America. Yeah. Or Elizabeth is saying, well, the people here are soft. Right. She, yeah. sees, she says There's that literally
0: within
1: yeah. um you know, a within minute like, of getting there. Exactly. It's like their first hotel <laughs> motel room yeah. in America in nineteen sixty two or whatever it was. So that, that kind of way in which they're trying to examine American identity, American culture, mm-hmm. American like family and kinship life is also part of what the show is doing. And I and I like that the title has the capaciousness to make that possible.
0: Yeah. And I, so I, yeah, the capaciousness I think is a really nice way to put it. And I think just like to build on that a little bit, I think it also raises the question of like, who are the Americans, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I love a question.
1: I so, like, Danielle does love a good framing <laughs> question. That is very... Framing she does it much like, more effectively than I do, for, for the record.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. But, but who are the Americans? And, like, I think you're right. Like, we see in this episode that sort of, uh, for better and for worse, Philip is... Becoming American, he is American. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. he's more drawn to it, and Elizabeth obviously is like Team USSR over here. Um, and and like that is one of the main tensions, and I can see that being a tension going forward. I, I think like the the other piece of this for me, and maybe this is I, I might be I might be reading this wrong, but this is sort of where I came out at least on this episode, is that this question of, you know, who is American and who are the Americans here is also wrapped up in the authority structure that exists both between Philip and Elizabeth and sort of where they are with regard to like where they are in the KGB hierarchy and all of that. And like, correct me if I'm wrong, but my read on it was that Elizabeth was the sort of higher ranking agent here um because At least she's the, the one, one that contact.
1: is more trusted by General Zhukov. Uh, yeah. was like their not primary point of contact. He like makes a point of saying, yeah. "I like risked to come here to meet you in a safe house in the Washington DC yeah. greater area because I am worried about Philip."
0: Right, right. And so like I think that th- this question of who's the Americans is also linked to those, to the domestic relationships and the sort of what's the, what's happening in this show in terms of troubling or challenging or sort of like exposing some fissures within the sort of picturesque version of, of American relationships. So I'm sort of excited to continue to explore this question of like, who is American? Who are the Americans? To what extent have the personas that these, um, or the roles that like Philip and Elizabeth have taken on as a way to infiltrate, have they like infiltrated like their person? Like I'm, I'm, I'm just excited about that.
1: This is great. That's a very good thing to be excited about yes. um, <laughs> for, for the seasons of this show. Is something you said that I hadn't ever thought about, before, but this is, I guess, why we're doing the podcast and why you're yeah. a person that's good to podcast with. Um, you know, you, you raise the question of who are the Americans vis a vis authority structures that exist. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I might like to track a little bit more in this watch through this TV show is asking that question about should we, cons- how, to what extent do we consider the authority structures in the show, basically the FBI and the FBI counterintelligence, are those the Americans as well, right? Like, yeah. to what extent should we consider that representative or like bearing some essential Americanness as compared to, you know, we will come across many characters over the course of this, uh, of the show who are not directly part of that authority structure, but are yeah. nonetheless implicated or recruited or things are happening that yeah. uh, Philip and Elizabeth are trying to accomplish that draw them into the kind of grand spying uh, set pieces and so on and so forth. So that also like, who are the authority structure Americans who are the quote unquote, everyday Americans, which then tracks back onto the, is Philip becoming, has he become an
0: American as well? Well, and I have one last question for us, like in, in all of this is like, what's the relationship between the formal and the informal here? Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. like, if we think about the FBI or the CIA as like, Formal authority structures or formal representation of of like quote what it means to be American or whatever that is, then like what role do these more in, informal or interactions like play in in that like in that sphere? And I think like that will that's something where that's where the spycraft stuff gets mm-hmm. really really fun and interesting. Mm-hmm. I will say, I, maybe this is, like, a way to, to wrap up our sort of, like... Oh, I've got um, two more
1: big picture things. Oh,
0: you have two more big picture I have things? two more. Oh, yeah. Okay. But well, nonetheless,
1: point us <laughs> to wrapping up so that I'm remember- reminded <laughs> that I should shut the hell up and, like, get through my points quickly.
0: So, like, I, who is falling for these wigs? Like, <laughs> um, like, I'm sorry. Listen, we can intellectualize, like... This show from here from now until the cows come home, and we're very good at doing that. But like, who's falling for these wigs? Who's falling for the wigs? Like, come on, come on, Philip's wig more so than um Elizabeth's wig. She looked great as a blonde, but like, I'm sorry, hair in the 80s was obviously terrible, but like, Philip's wig looks like a wig. We're
1: talking about the blonde wig that he wears to, when he goes to meet Martha. Yeah. So he pretends to be, like, an FBI, like, super deep yeah. counterintelligence officer. And
0: my my whole thing, and, I, again, like, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but, like, the way that I read that relationship is, like, they know, they've met. They know each other. This isn't, like, the first time he's rolling up to her apartment. Correct. So it's one thing when you're, like, at a bar and some person has a wig on and, like, whatever. But, like, they talk to each other at least somewhat consistently how does this woman not know that he is wearing the world's worst wig on the entire planet like what's happening here
1: Uh, no comment (laughs) i think it's in my position uh in the conceit of this show i can only offer a no comment
0: at this point i'll take the no comment but i just needed i needed my the wig rant to be on record
1: (laughs) duly noted um i appreciate that like That is something that could have been in a later segment, but you brought it in here is I think a nice touch.
0: Yeah, no, it needed to be said here because I think (laughs) it's going to be a big part of the show going forward. There is a lot of wig scenes. uh, I'm pretty pretty sure that um, I'm going to have reactions to a lot of wigs. So I need it to be part of like, the general discussion we're having about this episode. If
1: we need a wig, a wig vibes (laughs) check, we can do that. Like (laughs) this is an open structure uh, here. So two, two more thoughts.
0: uh,
1: Okay. One is actually following up on kind of your, your point in the way you're thinking about discussing the American, what, who the Americans are and vis-a-vis Philip and Elizabeth. And that is the way that one of the things the show does. That's like, you know, I mean, Granted, it's like a kind of minimal thing in like the grand scale you and I are usually thinking about when we're teaching <laughs> class or whatever. But there's a little bit of like interesting gender politics that are flipping that's going on in how the show answers that question of who are the yeah. Americans. Because if you think about the opening ten, seven, eight minutes of the show, right, Elizabeth is wearing this blonde wig that... Danielle is like, this is a little sketch this wig
0: situation. Less sketch um, than Phillip's, but yeah, it's <laughs> a little sketch.
1: So, <laughs> um, you know, seduces the Department of Justice guy, uh, goes back, like, gives him a blowjob, like, is clearly going to try to set it up to take more information from yeah. him. Something that Philip, we should know, like, listens to Later on in the episode, and like yeah. I'm questioning what's happening here. So anyway, so we get Elizabeth like associated with like the honey trap or whatever the very like yeah. rote stereotypical sort of feminized spy craft would be. Meanwhile, Philip and the unnamed compatriot like try to jump, try to uh, capture, kind of are successful at abduct- abducting uh, the defector that they want to ship back to the Soviet union. So we have like the very traditionally normatively gendered Elizabeth is doing though, like the thing that is associated with sex yeah. and sexuality in the, in that way. And Philip is committing the like kind of violent fighting being very masculine. But then the show flips that where Elizabeth becomes the nationalistic zealot and yeah. Philip is like the quote unquote soft character mm-hmm. actually in the relationship between the two when it comes to the spy craft, to the spying, to the relationship to the Soviet union, to the relation to America, to all of those places, there's a way in which I think they're intentionally trying to flip that gender of that a little bit.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think that's right. And I think also right. Like the way that I was reading the show as like Elizabeth being sort of the authority figure within the relationship with Mm -hmm. regard to Russian nationalism, with regard to like where who's higher up in the KGB hierarchy, I think like supports that point. I also think that like opening the show with like the show opens with Elizabeth being the honeypot. And I think like there is, there is something of, of like, a, a power mover, like, questions about power opening that way as opposed to opening – I mean, like, there's a world in which they could have opened with Philip and, and John Doe yeah, trying the to jump scene. Yeah. the guy, but they open with her sort of, like, weaponizing her sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think probably we're going to have to keep coming back to, like, the like feminist questions and tensions that get raised in this show. Yeah. I'm not quite ready to call this a feminist show yet. I though think I- that's a,
1: I think that's a useless <laughs> question because um, the answer is always <laughs> going to be no for 99.99% of shows.
0: Yeah. But I do think like there are some like strong feminist yes. vibes happening. Sure. sure. And like, having Elizabeth as this strong character and sort of like as the starting point, even though there are these like more obvious, like sexualized tropes happening. Like, I think it does like the way that that interacts with authority and with hierarchy here is going to like get a, at least for me, it's like, it got me excited about thinking about that relationship.
1: I think you're right. But then here's the huge caveat. And this is, I okay. said earlier on that I think this is like with one gigantic exception, like a perfect yeah. pilot. And actually I think one of the many reasons that the one part where that I think just fundamentally fails, fails is because it doesn't do the thing you just did about questioning the kind of norms around sexuality and power. And that is that like, like any other prestige show from the like late aughts through late 2010s had to have like a character development via violent sexual assault plot. Yeah. And like they center that is like one of the main things that's happening here in this as the pilot. And like the show is so much better and smarter than that in like the entire rest of its run. And yet it like just relies on that, like kind of bullshit, like, you know, trope to provide character development for Elizabeth in a way that I think like, I guess on a plot level it works, but like on every other level, I think it just basically totally fails.
0: Interesting. Because I would, I, I, I didn't read it as that. I actually think like, it's not like, it shows how little character development she's had, right? Mm -hmm. Like that she's willing to, first of all, she like hides it which yeah. is a problem, which is a problem within, like, the conceit of the show and, like, is a problem. It, like, heightens the tension, so that's good. But, like, she hides it, so that's a problem. And, like, it, she almost compromises the mission because of it, yeah. right? If her whole thing is, like, we can't, like, the mission comes first, which is, like such a powerful like line to throw out in that in like that car scene where she's like trying to stop a guy from bleeding and also like kicking this other dude in the face like very interested in all of that but like ultimately the sexual assault part of this is like part of what almost it's part of what almost throws it all away for them. I think like the the place where it does do some interesting work is it actually does some interesting work for Philip, right? And this I think is like a sort of one of those places where it's like okay, it's a little too heteronormative and like yeah, like, like Philip fuzzy. Is,
1: is like mad that his Wife, and we can use the word wife in air quotes, right? Um, yeah. Was sexually assaulted by this man in the past. And that leads yeah. Philip to go, like, over the span of two or three minutes from, but I'm taking him across the street to the exactly. house, to I'm going to, like, choke this man to death.
0: Yeah. So, like, I'm with you that, that this is, I would say, the, like, the weakest part of the episode. But I actually think the reason I think it's weakest is slightly different because it's the, like... Hero swooping in of Philip mm-hmm. as opposed to like mm-hmm. the character development of Elizabeth, like, yeah. And I, <laughs> I'm just gonna keep saying, I think it raises the question of That's like lots of questions to me, so many questions, but it raises the question of like, is this perhaps a way that the show is still troubling that, um, sort of like assumption or standard trope of like sexual assault driving female character development in that it's driving male character decisions mm-hmm. and driving them in a way that like ultimately like might end up coming back to bite them in the end.
1: All right. That's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think we, I, I and it's interesting. I, I forget the extent to which this becomes or doesn't become like a part of Elizabeth's character so that yeah. might actually be this like a very question might be something that we revisit as we as we move along um, one question back. I realized that the show asks and actually does provide an answer to and Danielle and I will ask a lot of questions without answering but we can probably answer this one like right now the show yeah. asks the question is nationalism bad and the, and the answer is yes
0: yeah the answer that, is definitely yes and that
1: applies to American nationalism and, and, um, and the Show, which is something else that I enjoy about it quite a bit. Should yeah. we do should we some some shtick, some segments? Yeah, let's do some shtick. Okay, our first segment. There are a few of them, friends. Um, is called Strap and, in. <laughs> uh, it's called Borrowed Nostalgia for the unremembered 80s, which is a reference to when we start having guests in the future, we're going to see who knows the reference. Uh, I do not know the reference. One of us
0: does not know the (laughs) reference. I did not watch, I have not seen the show before and I do not know this. This is
1: not, this is not an American. No, I know, but I feel like this is hipster bullshit. Uh, When we
0: switch gears and I'm the one who's seen the show, I feel like I need to rename this segment something that maybe you don't understand.
1: Great, great. So Barb and for the Unremembered 80s, which is our general, let's check in on the vibes of the 80s being depicted uh, on the Americans. Now, this is a little bit tricky. Um, I was born in 1987, so I don't remember the 80s. Danielle is slightly older than I am, but probably also does not remember the 80s.
0: The '80s for me were like a lot of Popples and Teddy Ruxpin, okay. so not these are. vibes. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> y- your child, you you were robbed. Um, but I, I would say that I have I have watched a lot of bad movies that are set in the '80s. So even though like I don't remember the '80s in the like forefront of my brain in terms of how I experienced them beyond toys. I do definitely remember, like, bad John Travolta movies nice. where he, like, gets kidnapped to a Russian town, but, but <laughs> it, like, it's not Russian. It's, like, middle America, but he doesn't know that he's not in America.
1: The incredible thing is that I don't know if Danielle is just, like, making this up no. or, like off the dome or if Full- that's an actual movie, because I could be convinced either way.
0: Actual movie, but like also like Pretty in Pink, The Breakfast Club, like <laughs> all this stuff, like that's that's my my cultural memory of the eighties, and that's not like because I lived it. <laughs>
1: okay, uh, so n- nonetheless, those caveats uh, present. Bard and the cider for the unremembered eighties is where we check in on the eighties vibes, and I think we have to discuss. Uh, there are some silly things I want to note. But right. I think actually discussing our borrowed nostalgia fan remembered 80s is that, like, so we're never going to see as a character on the show Ronald Reagan. And yet okay. the show is always about Ronald Reagan the entire yeah. six seasons that it runs, right? Like there's and, and there's a way in which both the Americans and the Soviets are like making fun of Reagan in this uh, period. So like uh, Amador, Stan's partner at the FBI, is like, mm-hmm. oh, well, Reagan makes some joke about Reagan being a Mormon and Stan's like, he's not a Mormon, he's a fundamentalist and Amador's like the same thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then,
1: you know, Zhukov calls Reagan a madman, like a madman yeah. who's just been elected, right? They set this show for very soon after reagan has been inaugurated yeah obviously like reagan is you know the the fucking worst like in all categories (laughs) so
0: terrible Um, and so So we're into that
1: (laughs) yeah and so we're, we're into the fact that like there's a no not nostalgia or at least not positive nostalgia for ronald reagan in this show
0: yeah we're definitely into that and i i I like the way – I didn't know that Reagan, like, doesn't pop up as a character, but, like, I like the idea, or rather the, like, realism of all this, that, like, this could have been happening and unfolding in the way that it did because, like, we're actually setting it in, like, the real world.
1: Yes, and there's going to be a lot of questions about, like, what, what the fuck are Ronald Reagan's actual intentions? Yes, yeah. Mostly the Soviets, but also sometimes the Americans don't know the answer to that. <laughs> and, like, while, you know, it's the, it's the nostalgia for the unremembered 80s, because I do not remember them, it's <laughs> also true that, like, young John read a lot of, like, spy novels, like, set during the Cold War. So, like, I have some thoughts about, like, Reagan the Madman, to use Zhukov's word. Um, are there are any other, Daniel
0: like... still reads spy novels.
1: True. True that. Some are still um,
0: set in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, are there any other like very 80s? I have a few, but are there other like 80s vibes, notes, observations you want to make?
0: Yes. This is not as serious as that one. And That's okay. My, mine something. are not
1: serious. So we're, my, <laughs> it, the rest of them, so we are in, in good it waters. It
0: goes now. back to something I already said. And we understand why this is the case, but like Elizabeth would not have straight hair. OK, and Carrie Russell's hair is amazing and true is amazing and when true. it's curly. If anybody has ever seen Felicity, I did a rewatch during the pandemic or the first round of the pandemic when everybody was baking sourdough bread and watching Tiger King. I was watching Felicity um,
1: on multiple
0: levels. She would have permed hair her hair would be permed the 80s was about perms why does this woman have straight hair so i mean my, again we get it
1: <laughs> well we don't necessarily get it so my question is Is this is it easier i am a bald man i'm a bald cisgender man all right <laughs> like um is it I, easier to do the wig if yeah. her hair is straight yeah yeah, yeah. Was permed? that's my yeah. question
0: uh, yes i also like
1: also, why am I taking this question this seriously? That might be the <laughs> real question.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's fine. Yes, I think like the reason she has straight hair is one, she also looks amazing with straight hair, but True. it makes the, the wig situation easier. And then we don't have to ask questions about like how is she getting that hair hair in the wig and all of that. And like I you know, in this episode, her wig was believable, like to uh Phillips totally unbelievable wig. <laughs> and so like, but the, the, the hair vibes is like, okay, that's early aughts hair. That's not 80s that's hair. True.
1: On the other hand, Phillip's hair, Stan's hair, very strong. Fully,
0: vibes. full, full 80s. Yeah. Full the men, and the men terrible. actually are doing, oh yeah, terrible. But I, I think like the men in the, in the episode are like hitting the fashion points of the 80s. Pardon? Stan suits, yes,
1: definitely. Yeah. Like that, that is my stereotype of what like a very straight laced like white FBI yeah. guy. Dude in the,
0: suburbs, in the suburbs. His suit's a little too baggy. Like that that feels there's like stripes that don't make sense. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of that. That that feels right. Um, okay, what else did you have? What else do I have?
1: I have Phillips tracksuit for his jogging Full. slash spy mission. Incredible Adidas 80s yeah. fit. For yeah. our friend Philip. Yeah. Uh he like gets a, a glow up, I think, uh at some, at several points over the like Matthew Reese circa pilot is not particularly hot in my mind. Like later Matthew is Philip, very attractive man
0: in yeah. my mind. Uh, okay. and
1: also Paige is doing her homework on a typewriter, which I found quaint.
0: I don't think a Middle school student would have to use a typewriter in the 80s, but I did feel like the typewriter move was like, a oh, yeah, 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 we're in the past here. So I I liked that.
1: And sometimes finally, and bar nostalgia for the unremembered 80s, living true to its title, there's a hint for our friend Danielle, uh, living true to its title will be a music check in. And one of the things that you will come to find out, Danielle, over the Americans is that they really love a needle drop. Like now, obviously, literally every single show needs to have cool needle drops. Yeah. Americans like was part of like the way that was like, you have to have cool needle drops. There are two like truly iconic needle drops, both at the beginning and end of the show that okay. have to be have to be reckoned with. Okay. And that is Tusk by Fleetwood Mac plays towards the end of the opening, like chase sequence of the director. Right. So like goddamn beautiful, gorgeous song test by Fleetwood Mac, which then recurs later towards the end of the episode. That's what's then is playing over the final, final scene where Stan goes in the garage. Okay. So we get not for the first time, if I remember correctly, some like major Fleetwood Mac moments. um, Okay. On the Americans. And then like, it's, it's so obvious that, It's that it it almost is bad, but it's really, really wonderful is we get a slight remix of in the air tonight where they like get to Mm. the, to, to when the drum hits faster than the actual in the air tonight as Philip and Elizabeth dump the body of the defector into the ocean, uh, after dissolving it in acid and then Mm. proceed to have sex in the car.
0: So it's so funny because I am not someone I mean, like, I think in our relationship, you are definitely the music, like person and you're often like recommending like music to me and, and, and I'm like, happy to listen to music. Danielle,
1: what what would we say your number one listened to song (laughs) of the year 2020 was? This might give the listeners a clue. If you're willing to, like, put yourself out on front street like willing,
0: Fully willing. 2020, number one listened to song on 2020, which was then number five on 2021. So it's not like it left, but it was You're Welcome from the Moana soundtrack by The Rock. Great. You're welcome. So... (laughs) this is all to say John is the music brains of this, uh, partnership.
1: A little generous, but but I'll take it.
0: (laughs) But so I'm not often watching when I'm watching TV shows or movies, I'm actually not often cognizantly like paying attention to the music though. I'm, I'm often impacted by the music. And so I, I picked up on, on the first round of Fleetwood Mac, but not, not when it comes back later. And, so I think, like, one of the things that's going to happen for me when we're watching together is just, like, becoming more attentive to music while while watching TV. And I'm sort of excited for that. But I also think that those are two great songs. And, like, in terms of what they're doing in the episode, like, I think they're used really well. They are. I also now understand why Andy Greenwald loves this show so much. Because he is, like, the... Music drop, eagle eye, needle drop. <laughs> person in my podcast life.
1: <laughs> Great, uh, I'll be. I'm happy to be second place there. Um, I'm not close to second place. All right, shall we? Shall we go to our next segment, Danielle?
0: I believe we shall. So, next segment is minor character of the week. Um, I'm going to take this one because, as we've said, John's seen the show and I haven't, so I know that like some minor characters become less minor, but I'm just going to I'm going to take it. Minor character of the week this week is the dude from the mall who like hits on the daughter. <laughs> I just was like and this this taps in. He's minor character of the week for me because I'm like ugh, this creeper is like totally lurking at every mall in America in the 80s like 100%. And then I feel like this loops back into a couple of our conversations, both about masculinity, mm-hmm. also about nationalism, mm-hmm. also just, like, about uh, authority. And I think one of the things that I, like, I, I'm i not really for, like, violence in a show, and the scene where Philip, like, beats him up at his house was, like, a little too bloody for me. There are going to be but some
1: I, tough watches for Danielle down the
0: line. Yeah, which is okay. I I'm, I know I know at least that I'm getting into. But I did really feel like part of the reason why I'm nominating this character, who is I right now unnamed, arrow maybe um,
1: this is his name.
0: Okay, I'll take it. But he part of why I'm nominating him for minor character of the week is like we get to see where um, we get to see Phillips restraint. And we know as the audience that, like, he's totally capable of kicking this dude's ass when he, like, meets him in the mall. And then the, the like, comeback later when he, like, rolls up to his... his in his, when he, like,
1: dirtbag Philip, uh, yeah. like, uh, persona.
0: Yeah. yeah, which I was like, another wig, terrible. But um,
1: dirtbag Philip disguises are some of my favorite Philip disguises. Mean, sure. I
0: mean, I appreciated it. And, and, like, the terrible wig fit with the persona, but that's my minor character of the week. Uh, yeah. No notes. No notes. Great. I love it. Um, okay. What's next? So, oh, okay.
1: <laughs> One of the segments I'm most excited for, um, which is called... I'll introduce it, and then we'll let Danielle go off. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's this, this episode in particular is probably the, the most uh, exciting for... for. It'll always be exciting. The The Danielle dossier, in which Danielle is like... Engaging in wild speculation, conspiracy theories, I've never seen this show before, figuring out what the red herrings are, performing some spy craft of her own, all of the above. So, Danielle, the floor is yours.
0: Okay. First of all, the kids absolutely know what's going on. Like, there is no way that those kids do not know. Elizabeth is screaming in the garage, and they're beating the shit out of this guy in the garage. The kids are upstairs. The kids know what's going on. So I just want to, like, put that out there first. Conspiracy theory number one. Conspiracy theory number two. I think that um, Chris, who's, like, the other FBI guy, I think that he's a KGB agent. Like, there's got to be a KGB... There's got to be an agent on the inside. So, and I, I feel like Chris is the, like, that actor can do so much more than just play second fiddle to, to stand like Chris is uh embedded.
1: Had I been in charge of minor character of the week this week, Chris Amador was going to be my minor character of the week. So,
0: well, I, and I, I, I like to...
1: this. I like you staking, staking your position here.
0: <laughs> yeah. Chris is like, he's, he's on the inside. So, um, let's see what other conspiracy. Okay. So you mentioned Philip and Elizabeth having sex in the car after they dumped the body. And I was like, okay, there's a way to read the scene where it's like, this is them like really coming together and like this, this, and that. And then I'm like, this is Elizabeth doubling down on who she needs to be for Philip for them to. Uh, like, continue on this path and to, like, solidify and, like, the mission, she needs to, to like, sort of domesticate herself for him. So, like, this isn't... I don't think this is Elizabeth, like, falling for him. I think that this is, like, her doubling down on, like, in order for this to work, I have to, like, play up the, like, the femininity part of this more to, like, balance the fact that, like, I'm running the show. Those are my conspiracies for this week. Those are incredible. <laughs> I I have to no
1: comment every single one of them. Great. And also they're incredible. A true both and, which Danielle <laughs> and I absolutely
0: love. So we love much. a both and.
1: Uh, so our next segment, I still can't believe this is the name we're going with for this segment. <laughs> Although this I think is, it's this, my fault. Um, it's definitely
0: your fault. And this is also the, like, this is truly for us.
1: <laughs> uh, um, this is going to be, it started as just like miscellaneous random observations or things we enjoyed or would like to say on, um, you know, posterity recordings. Um, <laughs> but it's called GLOSS, G-L-A-S, Gloss, which is the name of like one of the most obscure Dairy dog books. So... This is we're we're not this. Yet,
0: shaking my head. <laughs> we're not
1: yet at the political theory section. This is just the title of this segment. This is still normal people observations, although not for much longer. I, I want to point out, and this picks up on your minor character of the week, Phillips' love of the cowboy boots uh, in <laughs> the store in the mall and him like doing a little, a little, a little dance, a little line dancing dance at the mall, showing off his moves in the cowboy boots to the, like, shoe floor mirror, while everybody else in the store, his incredibly embarrassed daughter included, start to, like, watch him as he does this little jig over here. A+. plus.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, that scene was perhaps one of the best, and it's just, like, pretty silent. He's just dancing about just like in those cowboy boots and not just
1: for like five seconds for like a solid like 20-25 seconds of dancing
0: yeah no i appreciate i i appreciated the i appreciated the dancing sort of the like pause and and again back to that question of like who are the americans like how how much is being american a role that they that these characters are playing and how much is being american like part of who they are and like where, where does that line start to blur? Like, I think the cowboy boot scene was like, it wasn't fully blurring it, but it was showing us that it could pretty easily be blurred.
1: Not the first time that, or not the last time it is the first time, not the last, this is the first episode of the show after all, not the last time that we will see Philip in cowboy boots, not the last time we will see Philip doing some country Western style dancing. Interesting. Interesting. I, I love it. Danielle, do you have, uh, what would you like to start to contribute to glass this week?
0: Honestly, the Soviet aesthetics of it all.
1: Incredible.
0: <laughs> Fucking I,
1: amazing. aesthetics.
0: when I was watching this, uh, the note I have for myself, okay, gray sweatsuit watch. We are certainly in the USSR. Like it's the gray sweatsuits of it all that I'm like, I think I must've missed like a a title card or like the, the, the Chiron that said like Soviet union or wherever they were. Um, and I was like, well, we're definitely in Russia now because gray sweatsuits mean Russia. Like gray is Russia
1: (laughs) from the American aesthetic perspective. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The Soviet aesthetics are incredible. I want to focus on a couple other dimensions of the Soviet aesthetics. Let's do it. Um, and that is the scene where Philip and Elizabeth first meet in then Colonel Zhukov, later General yeah. Zhukov's office, where the earlier gray sweatsuit watch is now contrasted with this like very stately, ornate, like yeah, yeah. leather furniture. And yeah. in the attention to detail that I really appreciate is they got the like vessels from which Philip and Elizabeth have tea perfect. Which, so I, oh. you know, like in my deep expertise, I studied in St. <laughs> Petersburg yeah. for a semester as a fucking undergrad, right? It's not like <laughs> extensive, but I definitely drank tea out of the like, just a pure like nice glass with like the kind of like copper or some kind of like metal holder that like provides the handle. I've had many a hot beverage out of such vessels in my time with uh, my host family at a restaurant in uh, Sankt Petersburg, as we might say.
0: <laughs> nice, nice. Should I, I say you. some other Russian
1: words that come up in this episode? <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Although I will try to say Russian words in a not horrid accent when it appropriate.
0: I trust you with that. I feel like you studied Russian for a long time, and I trust your ability to like say words. I, on the other hand, am over here like this word has a lot of consonants next to each other. What's happening here?
1: Yeah, we've got, we don't learn Philip's original name. We do learn that Elizabeth's original name is Nadia though. So
0: there were a lot of extra letters in that word. And I was like, is that her first name? Is that her last name? Like what? First her? name. First yeah. name. Yeah. 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 Um, yes.
1: Okay. Apparently I found an excuse to say them anyway. All right. Um, I have one or two more gloss, uh, notes, but do you you want to add to that, Danielle?
0: No, 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 no. I I love your, I love the like meditation on, on Soviet stuff that you're giving
1: us. (laughs) To be like, I mean, Danielle is a much deeper understanding of literature and tragedy than i do uh, but the like <laughs> fact that the body of the defector or no, he's alive actually so the, the the defector is like in the garage in the house like mm-hmm. the the obvious reference because i'm not a especially literary person would be like the telltale heart right so some edgar Allan yeah. poe uh yeah you know transmissions from beyond uh, i'm sure there are probably better more literary allusions that are being made there
0: yeah, I had it. The truth is, I like that. I like thinking about Poe as a reference point because I think like, and this is one of the tensions. this there is like in the scene that where Stan is over? Like, is he gonna make noise? Is he gonna like make a sound? Are the kids gonna find out? Yeah. This was before I like got deep into my. The kids absolutely know what's going on, but like in the beginning, I was like, are the kids gonna find out if he like bangs on the on the trunk like of the trunk? Tower. You know, like yes, he's restrained, but it's not like he's weight. He's it's not like they put like a weight on his chest and he can't get up. Like
1: he's in a straitjacket, though, right?
0: Yeah, but he could have banged around. That's true. That's true. So I think Telltale Heart is a good one because part of the tension that's happening is like, are we going to hear something there?
1: Yeah, Um I have two more glass notes if we if you're yeah, willing to it. hear them. Um, number totally willing. This, this goes back to, to Wigwatch 2022, and that is the Clark-Martha scene is just, like, everything. Um, <laughs> because, like, Martha... I, I, this is a, the tiniest of spoilers. Like, is one of those, starts as a minor character, becomes, like, yeah. absolutely central to the show. Yeah. And... I misremembered when she came into the story. I thought that was like towards the end of the first season, maybe even season two, but no, okay. like they are laying the groundwork for Martha to like become a like absolutely like vital person in the show from like a half hour through episode one. So the Clark Martha scene, there are so many great scenes. I love the details of that scene. Like yeah. the, the cadence and like affect of Philip mm-hmm. as Clark, uh, Martha like making the tea which of course mirrors the fact that I think right before uh, F- Philip and Elizabeth in the Soviet Union first meet and have tea there's yeah. like there's a little like cookie like the like store of sugar cookie like on the plate just a lot of great detail in that scene.
0: I am excited to see what happens in that relationship because right now I'm like th- this isn't You're part suspicious. of the- uh, it's, it's just that like how are people this stupid is part of, and I think that's just going to be a, like, that's my question about the wigs and that's going to be, that's going to have to be my question and like going forward. And then I remember that like, you know, I get at least once a day, a text message being like your December bill from AT&T is paid. Click on this link for like a special prize. And I'm sure people click on that link and I'm just like, how is anybody thinking this is real? So I think I have to suspend my disbelief and, like, my excessive su- suspiciousness um, to be able to, like, enjoy this relationship. And I, I feel like that.
1: I totally could have been tricked by Philip or Elizabeth in 1983. <laughs> like, I, it, would, it would not have been difficult. I, like, fully accepted Grant right. that I am gullible enough for them to have, to have gotten gotten several over on me.
0: But I think that that's also a good point. The 1983 of it all is- Or 1981,
1: I should say, is this season is set, but it'll make its way through the 80s.
0: But like, like the 1980s of it all is like, is part of, I think part of the charm of this and that's like the spycraft and the leaving something underneath a park bench. And using a payphone, I was, like, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. excited about this. Yeah. And I think also, like, I have to, that that will help me take a step out of the, like, oh, how could anybody fall for this? Like, in the 80s, things were murkier.
1: Right. Like, Martha can't, like, look up Google. Clark's name on the <laughs> yeah. Google. Um, I mean, this yeah. is definitely, like, strong, to make a very cliched TV podcast point, you 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 need this show to not have smartphones in it. Totally. In order, totally. Or cell phones, even for it to work. Um, totally. My final gloss observation is actually returning to the sex scene at the end between Philip mm-hmm. and Elizabeth, only to point out that, like I said earlier, it's no surprise that, like, Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese, two incredibly attractive human beings, um, yeah. ended up getting together as well to this show. Because, like, I think this is maybe the best, like, cishet sex is on. TV, At least, you know, considering that it's FX was the network for the show rather than like mm-hmm. HBO or whatever. There's a limit to how graphic they can be. But I think like this is the sexiest sex of any TV show amongst this head, individuals is between our friends, Elizabeth and Philip Jennings. And I'm wondering if you got any, you're, you took that into uh conspiracy corner, Daniel <laughs> dossier territory. Yeah. So I would just like to point out that this will not be the first time that I think there's like a genuinely like hot sex scene between Philip and Elizabeth on this show.
0: Yeah. And I think that like part of, I was actually thinking about this. I have been watching, um, well, I've been watching Euphoria and also and Just Like That. And so one of the things I've been thinking about in those in those and they're both those are both on HBO, there's not a lot of subtle sex on TV anymore and I think that something that is like really powerful about the sex scene between Philip and Elizabeth and part of I think what makes it really sexy is that like you don't have like you know dicks and boobs and like the graphicness of of Yeah. or Like name any other HBO show. yeah, Yeah. You don't, you don't have that. So because you don't have the access to that, you have to do it in a different way. And so part of, I think like the constraints are part of what is working to, to make it, to make it sexier. So yeah, I agree that this was a pretty hot scene. Um, but I'm still firmly in conspiracy corner about it. Very legitimate. Um,
1: it's time for the final segment of uh, not quite great books, TV. Uh, not great, not quite. I don't even know what the name is. Apparently. What is the name of this?
0: Not quite great books, a TV podcast, not but great this great is books. the part of the podcast where we go to give the great ourselves books. permission to go to the great books. Exactly. So um,
1: it's a segment that's called the cave, because <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> uh, which is of course a point of reference. And now sometimes the cave will be a segment where Danielle and I made like a Google spreadsheet with like a list of, of political theorists. And we're going to just random number generate one of them. And we're going to like, be honest to the audience and like, not do that ahead of time and prep. And we're just yeah. going to have to like on the spot, come up with a connection between the episode we just watched and whatever the random number generator tells us to talk about in the cave. Other times, like today, for very special episodes, one of us—I'm willing to guess Danielle is going to be better at this than I will be at this—there's <laughs> going to be an actual political theory connection that is going to be made. And so with that, I turn the floor over to my esteemed uh, colleague, Danielle.
0: Well, I, I, thank you. And I think that it is apt that we—before we—, before we before I watched this episode, before we like worked through what we were going to talk about on our po- first podcast episode, we named this uh, okay. this segment the Cave. Um, and so it's apt in our first episode, the first thinker that we're going to turn to is Plato, and actually is thinking about the cave. So <laughs>
1: And we just want to I, highlight that if you if you turn the episode off now or wanted or two thirty seconds ago, that's okay. We no Yeah, we get it. We totally get it. This is like this is a very self read sort of <laughs> yeah. segment. Like yeah. we understand we're willing to grant that.
0: But I will say that the most amount of notes that I had on this episode were like <laughs> the potential connections. <laughs> I'm gonna do like two sentences on the cave and then and then the connection. So I'm Part of what the cave is for Plato, and this happens in the middle of um, the Republic, which is probably the the like greatest of the great books, or like the starting point of of a lot of lists on great books. As
1: Albert North Whitehead once said, "All philosophy <laughs> is a footnote to Plato." Wow! Or even wow. a footnote to the Republic. I forget if he was specific.
0: I, I believe it's Plato, but I mean it could be both. Yeah. So in the middle of the Republic. Socrates is sort of like rambling on about a lot of things. <laughs>
1: That's not very descriptive. <laughs> that does not place us literally anywhere. It could, could be any of book <laughs> one, any of the dialogue ten of, or any dialogue. So,
0: but he's trying to describe to his interlocutors like what it's like to um, to be wise, what it's like to to sort of be in a position of of authority and have knowledge and, and all of these things. And so what he describes is, is the cave, which has become quite famous. And he says that like, imagine yourself sitting in a cave with y- your chain to a wall and you're looking at the wall and you're seeing these sort of shapes and shadows appear. That's, if you can't move your neck, if you can't move anything, that's what you think reality is. All of a sudden, you, you like become able to, to move about and you become able to turn your head or even realize that turning your head is a possibility. And you look behind you and you start to see that the shadows are not reality, but somebody like figures are being projected onto the wall and those figures are, are reality. So now your, your perspective on reality has shifted. Now, that's also not fully real. And you you realize that people are sort of carrying these things and the, the way that they're being projected is there's this fire. So you're starting to, this is like, it's a metaphor for like a kind of awakening. You're starting to open your eyes to the way in which reality exists around you. Ultimately, what Socrates describes is that as you start to see these different pieces, you realize that the fire also illuminates uh, a way out of this underground cavern, even though this is all you've ever known for your life. And so you start to leave the cave. Hello, we're in a cave. You leave the cave and you end up outside because you're sort of following this path that another source of light is illuminating. Now it's not the fire, now it's the sun, but you don't know that. You leave the cave and And it is painful for you to leave the cave. So the way that I always describe this to my students is like, if you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you turn the lights on in the bathroom and your your eyes, like it hurts and like you can't see for a minute and it takes you a minute to adjust. That's sort of what Socrates is describing as like the movement from this underground dark cavern into the outside that's illuminated by the sun. Then you realize that your entire life that you lived in the cave is... Not real and doesn't represent and, and is sort of these, these, um, cutouts and copies of a real life that you could live outside. So, but when you get outside because it's painful, you consider returning because you know the darkness and the light hurts and it's hard to, to sort of, to exist outside. Eventually you, you get used to it. You get used to it, and then you go back in. <laughs> that's, like, that's the quick and dirty version of the cave. We can get into a lot more of it. I'm not going to because the thing that I want to say is one of my committee members, when he teaches this to students, focuses on the the turn and the return. So, like, that you are always in the cave as you're, like learning about all the different layers of lies that you're living in. (laughs) You're always turning and returning, turning your head, turning your body, reorienting yourself. But eventually the philosopher, who's the person who leaves the cave has to return and go back into the cave. And I think that that idea of turning and returning is the thing that's happening in this episode. So you get the, the turning and returning if we think about like Elizabeth um, and the interaction that she has with the general in the safe house at the end, where he asks her about Philip and she's like, no, 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 no. Like, he's good. Like, this is all fine. I think there's a way to read that as like a reshaping reorienting and sort of a, a, like a recommitment or a return, like that there's something about the relationship with Philip and something about, the foundation that they are building that requires Elizabeth to sort of like return in this moment where she has the choice to just stay outside of the cave and, and like live life in the sunlight. Wow.
1: That's <laughs> masterful. Uh, I'm ready to sign up for whatever class prop Henry is <laughs> teaching this semester, um, especially if we're going to talk about the Republic. And <laughs> I love that a lot for many different reasons. I think if we were uh, pro-American propagandists, we could make that same reading differently, which is that Philip has actually made his way out of the cave because I America right. is like the truth and the sun and the good and the form of the good and everything. And now yeah. he wants to go like drag, like drag uh, Elizabeth and drag uh, Page and Henry out of the cave as well. So.
0: yeah and I think that like I love that and I think that what why the this is like a quibble that I have with Plato and the Republic um, hopefully the first I, of
1: many Plato quibbles that you the listener can learn about <laughs> on not quite yeah. great books
0: uh, join us while Danielle tries to reference each uh, dialogue <laughs> per episode <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll only get us through a
1: couple of seasons. How many? I mean Euripides is next like our oh, next. Oh. Don't I'm, worry. I'm Euripides shocked. Euripides We have zero Euripides references in
0: an hour 23 of the podcast. <laughs> I'm shocked that you were the one that made the first Euripides reference also honestly. Genuinely shocking. But I think part of like what frustrates me about Plato and sort of the platonic construction of reality and objectivity and rationality is this idea that like there is one truth. And I think one of the things that using the turn and the return to think through like Philip and Elizabeth separately, but using, but both of them is the idea that like, there is no objective reality. There is no objective truth, right? Like there is no one standard and actually like reality is all about the mirrors you create and how you angle things and like and and so I think it works. I think there's probably a way we can read stand through through turning and returning also, though maybe that will come later. But I, I sense that there's a turn return stand situation on the horizon. <laughs>
1: Great. Um, no, no comment. Uh, <laughs> other than to say that, I don't know if the mirror was an intentional segue or not, but I do want to point out that the literal first scene of this show is Elizabeth in her blonde wig seducing department of justice guy as her profile is in a mirror in the bar. It's like that question about my or representation or like mm-hmm. image reality, these sorts of things are, Built into the aesthetic design of the show yeah. from the very first scene. Although I think it's actually like, a, like 15, 20 seconds into the scene when the camera pans a little bit that we see yeah. the mirror. So there's actually like, you know, it's the first scene, you know, it's not quite the first second of the show.
0: Yeah. But like, it's, I mean, and in a show about spies, like. Where is the camera?
1: Champion? Like, it's a legit question all the time.
0: Yeah. I love it. I I could, I could honestly talk about this episode for like two more hours, but I do think we should probably, we should probably wrap it up. (laughs) I think
1: you're right. (laughs) My like vague, okay, let's try to not make the uh, not quite great books episodes longer than the show we're watching is already out the window on episode one, which I'm very proud for.
0: Well, I do feel like on this episode, we had to like give a spiel about who we are. Um,
1: you can lop off those first eight minutes and we are still longer than the long pilot that we just watched
0: <laughs> <laughs> a pilot during which i was like what is time <laughs> what's happening here we don't even have time um, to get into what is time but we will don't worry we will uh flashbacks time is a big is going to be a big theme for a not quite great books podcast
1: <laughs> for sure for sure. Thank you for joining us. And if yeah. anybody
0: joined us. Or yeah. not joining us. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. You made it to the end of the episode. And we only talked about Plato for like seven minutes. Amazing. Honestly, an accomplishment. It might never happen again. It might, you know,
1: I, I mean, in seven minutes, like 24 oh. minutes, totally possible.
0: Totally we really, possible. I, we, and by we, I mean, I really restrained myself. <laughs> I mean, Two sentences was always a bit of a pipe
1: dream, um, but an an extremely impressive distillation nonetheless.
0: As a different committee member of mine used to say, that was the quick and dirty (laughs) (laughs) Play-Doh.
1: All right, quick and dirty Play-Doh, Not Great Books TV podcast. Thank you, listeners, for joining. Tune in next time. We'll be talking about episode two from season one of The Americans called The Clock. Joining us on Not Quite Great Books, the TV podcast, which is created by daniel Hanley and John McMahon. Shouts to Producer Amy. We don't really have a producer. You'll find out who Producer Amy, who's not our producer, is sometime down the line, dear friends. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at tv at gmail.com. We don't know if we're going to have some kind of like listener feedback section if they're listeners, but, you know, if you have questions for us, I guess go ahead and, and send them our way and, you know, chances are we'd be interested in answering them. Tell your friends, subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is if you're listening to this. Tell your friends to do the same. Leave us a review. You're a podcast listener. You know what to do. You know what our beseeching to you is, what goals we'd like to accomplish with you, our dear listeners. The music you heard today is Electric Trend 60s by Less FM. On Pixabay. You also heard a clip from Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. See you next week in Falls Church, Virginia.